questions. <coughs> ah, perfect. Beautiful. Thanks for joining me today, Jerry. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Ryan. Um, so today I wanted to talk about um, uh, emergency response and preparedness um, kind of in the face of looming climate issues, you know, particularly in Australia, we've had, you know, one of the wettest years on record with just deluge after deluge across various eastern eastern areas of Australia. Um, and I know last time we spoke a little bit toward the end about uh, some of the ways you envision that we might utilize um, kind of some of the some of the waste materials that turn up yep. say, after an environmental issue and how we might then use them to mitigate some of the the consequences of those environmental issues yep. um, so just to clarify because I I forgot to quickly do it before we jumped on here but you're are you part of the international biochar I'm still I'm still a member of that group yes I was one yep. of the I was one of the initial people who helped set it up in 2007 yeah great okay so kind of with that organization uh, or at least with biochar itself there's been a lot of interesting research into how it can be used for water filtration stronger, better structures and things like that. Um, can you just take us through a bit about your involvement with with, with biochar? Um, well, possibly the possibly the best example of that sort of thing that I could talk about was myself and a gentleman called Frank Stree, who's in Tasmania, had some time ago um, put together a package of a relatively small package of, of conceptual things to utilise in countries on island communities where that are constantly hit by typhoons. Um, we had, I think the last time we had a really serious typhoon, cyclone, whatever, on, on one of the islands, I think Vanuatu, um, we had a lot of people from that community working here in Australia, so they couldn't get home. Uh, there, was, there was such devastation in some of those island communities, but, but the the thing that Frank and I were sort of focused on at the time was how can you look at the assets that you've got that can allow you to quickly recover. So generally what we what we do as broader community is look at the mess rather than think of the opportunity. Um, if you look at a lot of the housing in those island communities, a lot of it is unpainted wood. Um, a lot of it's broken and damaged beyond the point of being able to be used by the community for anything. But again, as you said before, um, if that material was turned into a biochar, it's one of the perfect things you could use for filtration. And then once you've used it for filtration purposes, you could actually activate the biochar with a relatively simple inoculant of one sort or other and get it back into the soil and start growing food on it. So it's conceivable that within five to six weeks of actually having a cyclone pass through, you could be, you could be drinking clean water within days <clears throat> And you, you could be growing food within days and eating that food within weeks. So all these things are really practical things that basically cost nothing, um, apart from <clears throat> apart from the, whatever technology you, use, you choose to make biochar. But in that instance, I would suggest that there's either Frank Stree's design of a of a large watt type um, device that they call the Contiki, 
there are really elaborate, sophisticated things that cost many millions of dollars, which you could also invest in. Or there's just the simple techniques that people have used for millennia to make charcoal, which is basically burying wood under a pile of soil or sand, excluding the air and then controlling the burn. Um, there's lots of ways you could do it. Um, and some of them aren't, aren't in any way expensive. They just try, require organising skills so you're prepared for when the next event happens. And, and really, uh, that's more documentation than anything else. It, re it just requires a box of matches and a bit of brains, really. Yeah, right. So, like, when, say, after you've done a bunch of filtration of contaminated water and you're then using that same biochar to grow food, are you... Like, is there a risk of, of the things you've pulled out of the water then getting into the food? I don't think so. Um, if you look at if you look at most of the stuff that we use inoculant as inoculants, which are basically well, they're all the all the ones that I use are, are based around lactobacillus. <clears throat> most of those processes can easily um, deal with most of the biology that would be in those in those systems anyway. All of the all of the processes that I use easily deal with um, E. coli and salmonella, which are the main things that EPAs all around the world are, con are, are really concerned with. I mean, if you if you really needed to, um, if you were inoculating it with an inoculant product that was, say, a hydrolysate, um, that's something with a very low pH. So when you actually put it, the, the biochar into the hydrolysate, the low pH would cool off anything that's in the biochar anyway. Um, oh, I don't. I don't think it's any concern. Um, it would only require a bit of advice from a health professional as to how you'd guard against that. But no, it's it's relatively easy to control. Right. Okay. So the main issue in those situations is E. coli, Salmonella, like a a, a a bacterial or viral contaminant, more so than say heavy metals or things of this nature. Heavy heavy metals are a concern in biochar circumstances, but usually only where people have actually been using lots of poisons, lots of fungicides, or or in some instances, particular paint types. Um, yeah. But as I said, you know, that in that circumstance in island communities, you're going to have an awfully large amount of um, dry wood or dead wood that's never been treated with anything much at all. So I don't think it would be difficult to manage. I, I'm, it's just a question of where you might, in a paper, you might produce as a, as a preparing document you might nominate in that paper where your selection of timbers would be would be coming from, um, just to ensure that you're getting away from anything that to do with heavy metals or fungicides or other other age chemical agents. Okay, so say in the case of uh, Lismore, there's you know Lismore, the town's in a relatively <laughs> low area. Um, would they have more of a, an issue with heavy metals and things like that because there there's a lot of farmland around them? Do you think? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really think that heavy metals would be that much of an issue. Okay. Um, and and heavy metals is not really going to be collected by floodwaters in any any case. I couldn't see that being a primary issue. One thing that one thing that did happen in Lismore is I think there are there are probably three at least really sound techniques who could have utilised to actually process the food waste that was produced by that huge event in a very successful way to actually get it back into the soils as a positive product. So you could have used um, straight worm farming. Um, and there are lots of people around these days like um, Lee Fieldhouse at, at, at um, 
islands in the stream up in the Taree area or Nutrisoil down around um, the Albury area. Lots of people doing large-scale worm farming, so there's a skill around to do that. And we'd only really have to have the preparedness sort of basically put in place for that sort of thing for people to have as their documentation in terms of being prepared for an event that all of their food waste is actually source separated, it's put into a single pile. One of, one of the really frustrating things I thought in that video that, that was produced of people cleaning up after the, after the floods up there were lots of army people putting stuff into wheelbarrows, wheeling it 20 or 30 metres and dumping it on the ground. Now, what the hell was that about? I mean, it's just moving stuff from one spot to another. It's not serving any purpose unless you're putting it somewhere it can, where it can actually be collected or moved. Yeah. But also, too, there are so many valuable aspects in those products. Yes, there's painted products that would need to go into some sort of other treatment or into landfill even in the longer term, but there's also a lot of untreated products that could have been used in composting processes, massive amounts of trees. The, last, the latest issue of the New South Wales Farmers magazine has a picture on the front cover of massive, massive, massive tree roots, big piles of them from floods. Um, all of those things need processing, yes, and it's expensive to process, yes. But if we turn it back into a product that we can put back into the soils, then we're getting gains from it all the time. Mm. Um, so we've got to look at those sorts of things. Preparedness is not just so much dealing with the tragedy of people's homes lost and people's lives lost and, and horrible things like dairy farm fa families seeing all of their cattle washed off their property, but it's also what can you recover from that disaster that can actually make the relief for people in that community far, far, well, give them at, at least some level of resilience that can bring them back faster than it normally would. Yeah. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was doing a little bit of research around it, just kind of looking at the sorts of responses that were initiated around Lismore. And there's like a, there's an image of them like throwing all of their books out of the library because <clears throat> they've, yeah. they've all gotten wet. And, you know, there's just a big pile of books there. And I'm like, that's either perfect biochar material or perfect composting material. Absolutely. Right? And Absolutely. either one of those could could assist either the food issue or the water issue. Yeah. And I've been I've been working with a company for the last couple of years now called AKT International. They have a dehydrator. So you could if we've actually proven that we can put the material out of date material from Woolworth supermarkets in its packaging through that machine and it will extract all the protein from the from the food products that are in there it will it goes through 350 degrees so it's quite safe in terms of health but it also is has such a short residence time with heat treatment in its process which is only about at a maximum of about five seconds that all the packaging comes out shredded but but unharmed so it's recyclable and it can be sorted into plastic or paper depending on what sort of product it is. So if you if you in, in turn with that, which is an even more exciting thing, if you're in a situation where you've got a lot of grain available that's water damaged, you can actually soak the grain until the endosperm gets wet. If you put that grain in with that, with that food waste at the same time within all the packaging, it will actually produce a range of products, including it'll extract clean water, um, It'll extract all the paper and plastic so they're recyclable, but the but the grain itself is turned into a flour, and then all the protein that's produced by the, from that food is actually located within the flour. So you get a product out that's fit for human or animal consumption, 
directly from that food waste and that singular process. Well, so so this is it. It does like the sorting all yes. within the all within the machine. Yes, but the, it, it only it only does the sorting in the sense that um, its aim is dehydration, and it, you can't get any. There's nothing to dehydrate in paper and plastic, so that that just gets off to the side. That it right. comes out through separation by venturis or or different weight sorting and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, all the all the products that are produced are all located within this flower, and and it's really interesting to me. This technology has been around now for. 40 odd years and I really think that it's only things like the sustainability development goals developed by the UN and the pressure that's been put on on corporations all around the world to improve their act in terms of the environment and the drama of climate change and the need for us to change our practices. This technology is now being recognised as something that can really help in terms of those sustainability development goals and give really good carbon offsets. Um, to companies that were really trying to improve their act, companies like Woolworths or Coles or even food processors on farms, people who, who have a lot of vegetable waste can now produce a high quality product from the leaves and things that they'd normally throw away or indeed that if they wish to, they can of course compost those as well. So there's lots of options and we need to explore those options in preparation for, for events like Lismore happening in the future, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so so this machine is it is it the kind of thing that's viable for in individual farms to have on site like is it a large machine or it would be um yeah well i think the smallest version is just over a hundred thousand dollars and the mm. largest version is probably about four hundred thousand okay. dollars it's more the sort of thing that you'd have one machine for a community yeah or okay. in the instances that we've been i've been doing some work with some women who are farmers in Namibia. One of, some of the interesting things about about subsistence farmers is that 70% of the food in the world is produced by subsistence farmers and 70% of that 70% um, are women and they've got relatively small acres of land, so or small acreages. So they're not in a position where carbon or anything of that nature is going to be huge value to them. But if you can add value to their to the food, the, the grains that they produce, um, that would be something that would really directly reward that community. Now we've been finding that these grains, when they're put through that machine, actually gelatinizes the grain as well, which means that if you gelatinize a grain in that process, it means that you've done half the work that's needed to actually to turn it into a food product. You don't have to put in so much energy um, to turn it into a porridge or a meal that people need. So if you look at, say, in the in Namibia. One of the one of the big crops they grow there is sorghum. The sorghum is very very intense in terms of the amount of energy required to actually convert into something that humans can can consume. If you put it through this machine and had to wet it down beforehand, the product that it could produce would be a flour that you could make a noodle from that could be instantly prepared for people um, with very very little energy input. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. That's I think great. I think that, that I suppose what I'm saying is, spe especially in the field of organics, there are any number of options. What we've got to do is open our imagination and our eyes to the ideas of what can actually be put back into the community as valuable products that it, that either create more jobs, that save more waste going to landfill, that actually improve the quality of our soil. So lots and lots of options. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I was wondering, um, you know, you mentioned before that there are kind of, you can scale up with the, uh, how advanced your biochar producing machine is, you know, yep. it, can, it can be a hole in the ground or it can be yeah one of those Contiki ones or there's even machines where you can produce wood gas from yes. the, the material. Say in the case of you've had a, you know, a, a storm come through and, you know, it typically knocks out the power, you know, you've got, you know, water, all these kinds of things. You, you could essentially cover most of your bases utilising one of these biochar wood gas machines. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, there's, a, so there's, like, a, yeah. there's a company that's not far from us here, um, a gentleman by the name of Peter Davies, who's been around for some time, ID Gasifiers is their name. They actually had a machine running on the Solomon Islands. They, their, their invention is really clever in that in the gasifier structure itself, you've got a grate and there's a vacuum underneath the grate. So the fire is pulled down through the grate. But in that, in that process, um, by you get the, the same sort of effect that you get as a blacksmith. When you bellows, when you blow bellows into a fire and you get these incredibly high heats. I had one of the staff I had working with me when I was working for the New South Wales government some years ago. He was saying, this guy's bullshitting to you because he's getting much more energy out than he's actually putting in. And what we found when we inquired further with ID gasifiers, the temperature that they get below the grate is so high that it actually splits the hydrogen and oxygen off from the moisture that's coming in. To the, so to burn anything in a flame, you need to have oxygen. Oxygen's been drawn drawn in into the air, in from the air, the ambient air, and the ambient air always contains moisture. And what this thing was doing was splitting the hydrogen and oxygen off from that moisture, and then burning the burning the hydrogen as a gas. Right. So um, the majority of the biochar devices will burn some sort of gas of that form. Right. Okay. And 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 you can either you can say either capture that wood gas and use it elsewhere, or you would then maybe use it directly with the burner and produce electricity or just heat or... In the, in, in the instance of ID gasifiers, their machine is designed so that that gas immediately runs a generator. Right. So it immediately runs a scalable electricity source that could, could run that one of the things that we were toying with many years ago with their machine was the idea of, of pulling up railway sleepers from a railway line, using the electricity generated by the machine to actually break the sleepers up and then feeding those into the thing to create more gas, create yeah. more energy <laughs> to pull up more sleepers, yeah. Right, like so, a self-propelling Absolutely. Railway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, that, and it's, I mean, I think there are lots of people who absolutely abhor the idea of, of um, using what people are calling waste wood from the timber industry. But there are lots and lots of sources of timber out there that can be actually used, or there's there's lots of things that you could use. Um, mimosa um, weeds up in, in northern Australia, you know, they're in such vast quantities, you could use them as a fuel, um, just a designated fuel in different areas. Um, so you could actually get environmental improvement, improvement out of using certain weeds, things, of types of weeds or, or shrubs um, as inputs in as a fuel source, not using native species at all, just weeds and things of that nature. So, 
yeah, there's amazing technology, but because it can burn, it will burn almost anything at that temperature. And of course, it can, because it can be consistent with that high temperature, it means that it has no gaseous outputs. It has no like most forms of incineration. The biggest worry about mixed waste incineration is that you produce gas, you produce dioxin and furin all the time. This process does not do that um, because it burns at a consistently high temperature. Most incinerators use a thing called a fluidized bed, and the fluidized bed has to be maintained at a very consistent pressure and temperature for you to get a consistent temperature of burn, and that fluctuates all the time because it's what you're putting into the mix um, is is not reliable or not consistent. So you get as soon as you get fluctuations in temperature, you get dioxin and furin, which is supposedly taken out by scrubbers in the chimney, but you know. That's not necessarily true, um, yeah. but if you've got a high enough temperature and you can stabilise that high enough temperature, then the chances of putting something out through your flue are very remote. Right. Okay. And so you've got this gasifier. So you're you're burning waste material, whether that be bits of timber that have been smashed off a house, or trees that have fallen over, or books that are ruined. Um, and you're 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 producing energy out of it. You're also producing biochar. Yes. So you so you've kind of you're like covering three bases right yes. there with the with the gasifier. You're solving the problem, generating electricity, and and actually producing a biochar that you can put back into your soil. Right. Yeah, that's great. So so say say one of these ID gasifiers. Uh, what would their higher end kind of uh, systems cost? Do you know? I think I think the, the similar to the AKT technology, um, yeah. it'd be a small one would be less than a hundred thousand dollars, and a big yeah. one could be as big as you want, really. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, the size is only determined by the amount of available funds and the available input material. Right, and it's the kind of thing that you could potentially put on the back of a truck. Absolutely. And have Absolutely. it like yeah. a mobile it's, kind of. It's totally portable. The idea that I was talking about before about pulling up railway sleepers, the intention there was to actually have the thing travel on the same railway line it was pulling the sleepers out from under. Yeah. Because um, yeah. about, they pull all the old sleepers out and they put the new concrete ones in, but about, I think about a third of them are too rotted to do anything much with, but quite a number of them can be used as timber again. Um, because people, that's where some of the wholesale suppliers and these sorts of areas use those things for garden edges and things of that nature. Yeah. But the third, the third that, that, that's rotting, you could actually turn into fuel, and so your machine is actually mobilised on the, could be on the tracks or off the side of the tracks, and just following the railway line. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. Produce yeah. your fuel for the circumstances as you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. It's 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 interesting. Um. I did my uh, PDC with David Holmgren in 2020, yep. and he was talking about a similar kind of system for after a fire has come through and you've just got all these big trees falling over, they're dead, they're, they're not fully burnt through. Um, he was like, you know, you, you have a truck that runs on essentially wood gas and you've got burners on the back of it and it's just going along, picking up the trees, burning them, and it's like self-fueling while also clearing all of these roads. Yes. 
yeah yeah that's yeah. interesting yeah it's I, kind of I had, a, I had a few requests yeah. after the bushfires from people down on the south coast area of new south wales to do things with composting processes so um, what 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 happened um i think in the 2000 and 2001 bushfires here in canberra mm. um well next door to us in quibian we're not we're not quite in canberra but uh, I, there were there were lots and lots of people going through those with big heavy machinery going through those pine forests and the old bush areas, pulling up trees and things, turn, turning it into shredded material and just leaving it in big piles. And it was just such a perfect input for a composting process, especially inoculated composting process that produces a high quality product. You're already putting it into piles. All you would have had to do was wet it, inoculate it, and put a cover on it, and then just leave it sit for six months and pull the covers off, people could either come and collect the stuff in their gardens or spread it out in local areas and actually use it to improve soil. So lots of really good options rather than the, the stupid things that you see a lot of people do in emergencies, just shred something and leave it in a big pile somewhere. But I don't know what the expectation is, what it's going to do is, you know, it's pretty useless really. Yeah, and you, yeah and you kind of get a situation where we use a lot of energy to to essentially do what we do anyway with our waste we kind of just gather it up and then put it in a spot and eventually bury it but you know we're we're, we're already in a situation where things are like we're worse off the energy the the, the power's been knocked out the water's fucked up the people are you know in a in in dire situations yeah and we're then attempting to like run faster in order to catch up to ourselves yes just relying on the way that we've done things before yeah. which may or may not have assisted to the to the trouble in the first place yes yeah rather yeah. than thinking a bit differently about what it is that we're trying to do or what it is that we're trying to produce um and and we don't have to i mean if you look at the massive investments that governments making everything from defense to sort of general sort of infrastructure it wouldn't be very difficult to have people trained to use that sort of machinery at a regional scale I mean, and you could do it you know um you could make one proposal i worked on a couple of years ago was take there was, a, there was an idea of um treat, of killing off carp all through the australian river system so um using a, a herpes virus and right. it was proving to be very safe anyway one of the one of the jobs that I was given was actually making a hydrolysate from it. I'm making a hydrolysate, so a liquid foliar fertilizer. Um, it's very easy to make from fish. But what we designed was a little shredder that would sit on a car trailer with a with a tank of inoculant and a tank to put the stuff into. The dead fish would have been pulled straight from river, put through the process. But the idea there was to sell the product to a local group of farmers and have local farmers actually processing the material as it came out of the river system or having your local fishing club processing it as it came out of the river system and selling it directly to farmers with a guaranteed price of two dollars or four dollars a litre you know so again a, a, a potentially disastrous well not just potentially disastrous but a situation where you have an, an enormous amount of potential material that could go into a process um, that would actually enhance the condition of the soils and the farming areas, plus reducing input costs in all of the surrounding areas around the river system. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and the hydrolysates are relatively straightforward to make. Absolutely. We've, we've just managed to get there's some funding now on a project called Feralizer, which which we're up in Cape York um, in the Arakuan wetlands. There's millions of pigs um, and the pigs, well, apart from the risk of swine flu and foot and mouth disease and things they need, that we need to control. We spent a lot of money trying to control them. Um, we demonstrated that you could actually turn a full size pig into a liquid product using hydrolysis um, relatively simply um, in, in a process that can be located wherever your pigs are. Um, if we, what we were aiming at in that project and still are aiming at, is if we can sell that product for about three or four litres, oh, sorry, three or four dollars a litre to farmers in the area around the Atherton Tableland as an organic product, um, we could pay the person who shot the pig a dollar a kilo. So suddenly a 50 kilo pig is worth $50. That's a lot of money if you're an indigenous person living on country where you can potentially make $600 a week from, from solving the very ecological problem that's destroying your country. So yeah. it's, just, it's just a bit of lateral thinking, really. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's an interesting initiative. Um, hydrolysis is really simple, too, because it's um the secret to hydrolysis is, is the same as when we, as humans, eat food, we're eating proteins that have either been generated by plants or, or animals eating plants. We consume those proteins, and then when it, the material gets to our gut, through hydrolysis, the proteins are broken up into amino acids and peptides, and then those things are selected by your body to make fingernails or toenails or hair or lungs or whatever. Um, similar thing with the process of hydrolysis when you're doing it remotely with a pig, you macerate the animal, add 100% water, add a carbohydrate source for energy, and then use lactobacillus to kick the process off. Put a plug on the top of it, so a one-way plug, so that you, as if you're making home brew. Um, and in four weeks, the process will go through, very quickly, the process will go through a rapid drop in pH. And um, once that pH gets below 4.6, it's killed off everything, except I think the one thing that will survive 4.6 is rabies. But it's gone after about 92 hours. So we keep it in that process for four weeks. And at the end of four weeks, you've got some solids left over with similar characteristics to the, to the liquid. But the liquid is basically an organic form of nitrogen that contains lots and lots of amino acids and peptides. And so biostimulants um, have what they call a dramatic impact on abiotic effects. So on heat, on cold, is the way that plants feel heat or cold or lack of water or too much water. It gives them just this resilience to actually to defeat a little better those circumstances where they're drying out or they they need more water they need more water or they're too hot or they're too cold or they yeah or there's too much wind. Just makes them that little bit tougher and stronger. Right. Okay. So with that that form of a liquid nitrogen, do you you're not getting the same kind of issues that you get with the synthetic. No, nitrogen. no. The the lovely thing about the lovely thing about it is that synthetic nitrogen. Oh, I think gone. Some industries now realise that they're losing up to ninety percent of that synthetic nitrogen because it's either volatilised to the air or it's lost to your waterways. Yeah. Organic nitrogen in the form where you're making a, a making it into a hydrolysate. You're putting it on the plant. It stays where you put it. So whatever you put on the plant. Um, apart from apart from the effectiveness of staying where you put it, not losing it to the environment, um, it actually gets into the plant through the plant stomata or through the 
intercellular structures in the leaves, so it's very rapid uptake. Right. Um, I remember um, a New Zealand farmer saying to me once, see that tree over there? 95% of that stuff on that tree comes from the air. I only look after 5% and I stuff it up every time, which is quite <laughs> true, you know. Most of our additions of chemicals are stupid, stupidly inefficient, are poorly, poorly focused, um, a lot of waste of money in a lot of different areas. And what we should be focusing on to a great extent, as the biostimulants industry is now realising all around the world, there's much more benefit to be made by putting um, putting putting nutrients into plants and, and biology into plants and into soils through a foliar process. So you take a hydrolysate, that stuff that we're making for those pigs, we'll be diluting it between 200 to 1 to 400 to 1 before you put it out. Okay. Again, because it's got a relatively low pH, but also too, because you it's a stimulant. It's not intended to be a, an alternate fertiliser. What you're trying to do is stimulate the entire range of biological processes in the soils and in the plant. You're not trying to run the whole thing as we're constantly trying to do with chemistry. Right, okay. And so how much how much land would you be able to cover with, say, a litre of that pig hydrolysate? Most most of the people that I know who are using hydrolysates or vermicast is another good indication. Um, Lee Fieldhouse and his process up at Taree, I think they're using something like 16 litres of his product for every hectare of land. If you're using a, if you're using a hydrolysate, um, I would even use a lot less than that. So maybe five litres per hectare. Um, yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. And you're, you know, say off a 50 kilo pig, and you're adding 100% water. Is that, uh, say, 50 litres of water that you're adding to that protein? Um, yes, yeah, a bit more. It's a bit more than that. So you're getting an awful lot of one pig. Yeah. 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 Um, because it because the process is focused too, um, because it's not not as random as what we're doing with chemistry. It's a much more focused process. It's trying to achieve something. It's trying to achieve a small effect to create a bigger effect. A bit like permaculture does in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, your your totality of your actions, the multiple fit of things into a land situation. What you're always getting some benefit from one of those effects that you're trying to that you're trying to engender whether it's water saving or more food or better variety or, or um, just biological stimulant through multiple crop cover, things of that nature. Very similar to permaculture in that sense. You're trying to, you're trying to stimulate a process rather than control the process. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so we've kind of, a lot of what, what we've been talking about is like focusing on the soil and kind of, with emergency uh sorry like with like natural disasters and things uh whether it be rain or fire um kind of one of the one of the ways that we can mitigate that is directly with the soil right yeah yeah so we can you know uh i know there's the Dr. Christine Jones talks about the Jenna experiments from Germany where they've, they've got all those little little plots where they're trying different combinations of, of uh, nitrogen fertilizers and, and not fertilizers, single crops, multiple crops, blah, blah, blah. And they've kind of showcased that um, four families and above of different, you know, different uh, plant families, um, you get essentially drought resistance and flood 
resistance within these areas. Yeah. So if, even if they're flooded, I think it was for like three or three to five days, some of these plots were flooded. Um, and the ones with, you know, four or more plant families, they were able to survive. They were essentially fine after it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I find it in, interesting and a little bit frustrating that there's a lot of the a lot of the solutions to a bunch of our problems at the moment just come back to soil and in a lot of cases all we really need to do is be just just reverse things instead of perpetually removing things from our soil or adding in all of this artificial shit mm. if we just if we work with it, you know, we, 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 we utilize our waste, you know, your book, um, waste between our ears, excellent look at this. Um, and then, yeah, it, 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 even in emergency situations, we're able to potentially have the land be better off after the fact by utilizing all of these things that have kind of, being gathered up by the storm with yeah. you know, trees or building materials or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, it's interesting that it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy, but it's relatively simple. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's been, it, it has been really interesting that, um, obviously in 2019, I was with Christopher Jones, we did a tour of America and, and Canada. I'm talking about composting and things of that nature. But one of the people, one of the first groups we we're dealing with was a group called uh, Green Seed Cover. And they do exactly, they hit on the idea of multiple cropping systems through um, just clever planning and, and a lot of reading and permaculture sort of conceptual things, I think. Um, but the thing, the m amazing thing that they found was when they started to put these multiple seed crops into different areas, they had to find where a farmer was and what they were growing and they were collecting that stuff and putting it into database and then after about well after a number of years they found they had this enormous database where somebody could would ring them about uh, getting more a, a crop cover in and they'd say well what's your principal aim what are you trying is it a pasture crop or is it a grain crop um and what's your what are you trying to get out of it and um, where are you more importantly and as soon as they put that in boom because they had all this data it told them exactly what sort of seed they should be sending to that person um, and in what sort of quantities they should be, when they should be planting it, when they could be harvesting it. Um, and out of that, you've got some very clever people, Axton's Farms in Minton and Saskatchewan. They actually, instead of, is it, there's a very nasty habit that's developed in the wheat industry, particularly in Canada, where they use glyphosate as a desiccant at the end of the cropping season so that everything is dry at the same time. They use a poison to kill everything off. And then because they've used that poison to kill everything off, well, I was saying to the farmers, so you, then you take that grain, you send it out of town, you turn it into bread and you feed it to your kids. That, isn't that a bit loopy, you know? Yeah. Um, but what the accidents are doing is they, instead of investing in poisons, they plant multiple grain crops at the same time. So four or five grain crops at once, and they harvest the whole lot at exactly the same time. What they've invested in is they've instead of putting a million dollars into fertilizer, they put a million dollars into grain sorting equipment. So they're saying they're running, they're farming on 10,000 acres. They've cut their fertilizer inputs, their external chemical inputs by 80%. 
Wow. And he was saying to me, the thing that really gets him going is when he looks across the fence at his neighbour's place, he knows that he's producing his crop for about 105 to $125 a tonne less than that bloke is. So yeah. he's, make, he's making a lot more money. Yes, he's had to invest funds and things in it, but it's totally changed the direction that they're moving in. Now, there's another a person who's picked up that is um, a fellow called Grant Sims, who's in the area around, I can't remember exactly, Uchuka region of, of Victoria. Um, and Grant is a company called Sims Farms. They're doing exactly the same thing. He was showing me cropping area a couple of years ago in his place where he said his biggest problem is now that he's got such um, water holding capacity in his soils just by doing cover cropping systems all the time and growing with multiple crops. His neighbours are his biggest problem because every time it rains, their soils that don't absorb water, he gets all of their water, so he's drowning all the time in their water. Yeah, right. But that's the only problem he's got. But um, it's an amazing system, as you say. You know, I mean, you've got better, better, better diversity in your soils, better microbial conditions, better outcomes from the crops. You've got deep-rooted plants and shallow-rooted plants. They're all sort of underpinning the survivability of each other. You've got very little or no disease, um, and and you're producing better better quality food either for the animals you're, you're pasture cropping or from the grains you're producing. It's a win-win situation, and your input costs are dramatically reduced. We we just we seem so stupid as humanity. I mean, I say to a lot of farmers, you know, you've got a multi-million-dollar investment, don't you bloody breed? You know, I mean, I don't. I'm not a I'm not a farmer. I talk to farmers, but. I know a lot more about that sort of thing than a lot of those people do, and they're the ones who are trying to run the business. It's crazy that they don't read more. Yeah, yeah, I wonder. I I do wonder about that. I I I try not to to just be like, oh, they must be fucking idiots, or like, obviously, I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I can't imagine how difficult that that lifestyle must be or yeah. anything. But that there, there must be a certain priority of who they're listening to, and I feel like it's potentially the people that are selling them the fertilizers and the pesticides yeah. they are the source of how to deal with these things like how to deal with their crops and pests and all, yeah. all this sort of a thing yeah I, th I think that is the case but um there's also two i suppose when you're running a business as well some of them are so big and so complex that they've they've, they've got their nose to the grindstone all the time yeah. and and are not creating an opportunity to actually reflect on what it is that they're actually trying to achieve because really if we look at it even if Holgram and his mate were partially wrong in terms of permaculture overall the concept is just brilliant and the concept has come i think it's really come to its reality because people if you look at what green cover are doing or what grant sims is doing it's a permaculture concept it, it's just multiple crops to achieve multiple aims in the same spot um, and I'm, yeah. I know that's a simplistic way to to talk of permaculture um, and you have to change your system depending like the accidents in Minton you have to change your systems depending on what your outcome is but still if you can do what you want to do without having to have some huge chemical input you know especially for nitrogen you're paying somebody an enormous amount of money for urea when there's 74,000 tonnes of nitrogen above every single hectare of land on the planet. All you've got to do is put the bloody things in your soil and pull it down. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just a loopy, stupid concept. Where's it, where did humanity get that idea from? It's, yeah. yeah, it's just crazy. 
Yeah, it's we're, interesting. We're not advancing at all. We're just, we seem to be skidding backwards in some areas. But still, the, the thing that's really is satisfying about that is that I think a lot of those concepts now, like in the New South Wales Farmers Magazine, Farmer, uh, there's lots of stories now about changing direction, using compost. And yes, some of them are stupid and frustrating, some of the stories that they have, but people are at least beginning in lots of parts to start making some of those changes, especially younger farmers. You know, because people are realising, you know, how long how long can you keep up this huge input cost? So the price of urea, the, the price of fertiliser now is probably higher than it's been for many, many years. And that's not going to get better unless you can change your system of management. It's only, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, I can't remember which lecture of Christine Jones it is, but she, she goes into the, the, the increase in expenses that, that, that farmers in Canada and Australia have had, and then the decrease in profits, but the overall increase in how much money the industry is uh, uh, creating, but it's like 96% of those profits are going to Monsanto and yeah. you know all of those those yeah. you know all of those. There's, a, there's, there's an agricultural economist in Canada who, whose name I should remember, but I've forgotten. And he says exactly that that most farms in Canada are relying on for their totality of their their profitability and their and their income to survive to clothe and dress themselves and everything. They're relying on something like five to six percent of their overall income. And so they ride this razor blade all the time, you know, and and with climate change and the rising cost of inputs, it's just got has to, it just have to eventually it just has to push those farming families off the over the edge, you know. It's yeah. Just it's such a dangerous way to live, and you can't afford. We have to find some way to reduce input costs, not only not only for the improved human health, but just for the overall cost and the devastation we. We can't afford to lose farmers. We can't afford to lose farming. We need somebody to make our food when there's so many millions of us in, in intense living conditions, even in this country. We, we just can't afford to have farmers desperate all the time. Yeah, that's it. And there's such a sad reality with, you know, farmers being one of the most vulnerable groups when it comes to suicide. They're one yes. of the highest, yeah. highest demographics for that, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, p part of that is surely based on just how difficult it has become you know yes. they're 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 under the pump to you know maintain their crops in a climate situation that's shifting there's also you know they have to continually compete for prices when you've got Woolworths and Coles and places like this that are pushing them to give them the cheapest possible price yeah um yeah they're kind of they're getting swamped on on all angles yeah but see yeah. this there are there are instances of things like Hydrolysates are a pretty good example. If you, if you were say trying to sell your carrots to to Woolworths, and and half the time you see these poor bastards of, well, avocados are probably a good example. You'll see a little net of avocados in Woolworths, have eight avocados in it for six dollars fifty. Well, some poor bastard grew those things, picked them off a tree, took them to a factory, cleaned them up, put them in a bag, and got probably paid about twenty cents or thirty cents for each of them. It's just that's incredible. But if you're in that situation, say, as I said, with carrots, where you, the, the buyer refuses to give you a price that gives you a decent profit, I'm saying with hydrolysate, turn them back into a liquid and put them back on your farm as a fertiliser. Mm. 
don't sell them to anyone. You know, start start manipulating your own price regime. Start dictating the thing from from the idea of of just being a price receiver all the time. You start setting the price. Yeah, I was I I was thinking that with the most recent um, kind of price hike in uh, lettuce, it was like thirteen dollars for a head of lettuce. Yes, and I was thinking, for the most part, you know. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, grocery stores and 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 grocery chains are going to continue to stock this product because they don't want to have parts of their shelf where where they're like we can't get this thing they they need yeah. to maintain a certain image yeah but no one's buying it so there's going to be like these foods that are already in short supply they they're going to be wasted more by virtue of them being so expensive yes. So I'm like, rather than, yeah, rather than these stores buying them, the farmers should essentially just turn them back into their soil and just try again next year, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And if if they're going to do that, we need to give them some sort of resilience payment. We need to give them, well, resilience payment. We need to give them some sort of compensatory payment. Yeah. For not being able to market their stuff. Our food production systems really needs an overhaul. We're... We're, we're still living in the 1950s in terms of regulation. But right. they, even even now, this new government, um, there's still got a long way to go in terms of changing direction, in terms of concepts overall, you know, our concepts about food production systems and the concepts of how sustainable that'll be in the longer term. We really need to review all of that stuff desperately. Yeah, I wonder if potentially in a case like this, you could, you know, I'm not a big fan of, the way that we carbon accounts and we do our offsets and everything, but in in terms of a way of giving farmers some kind of compensation for this thing, we could essentially utilize carbon credits in this case, you know, all of that food that's not being shipped, processed, and then, you know, shipped again Mm -hmm. as someone takes it from the store back to their house. that's That's a carbon saving right there. And then also, if they're returning that back to their soil, that's then carbon that's you know put into a stable form in the soil. Yep. You kind of got two ends of the carbon equation, and you could essentially account for that in a monetary sense, perhaps. Yeah, I I think that uh, I'm I'm similarly dubious about a lot of the things to do with the carbon market. In in most instances, from what I've seen. Most carbon sort of sales that involves farmers tend to be instances where the farmer's getting 10% and somebody else is getting 70% and yeah, admin's yeah. getting 2% or something. But there's a new, and I forget the group, there's a new farmers group now that's up up and running that's running more of that sort of carbon where I think the farmers get 80% and the admin only takes sort of 10 or 20%. That's That's an interesting idea. But I think if you if you think along the lines of where permaculture was many many years ago, we'd be much better off to pay pay farmers based on simple things like, well, for, first of all, proving carbon um, sequestration is a very very difficult thing, very very hard to do. But why why I can't see why we can't pay paying farmers for things like nutrient density in food, or or water infiltration in soils, both of those things indicate that they've raised carbon in their soils and they've got better microbial density and they're not using as much chemical um, 
water infiltration is such a simple thing to set up with just a ring on the ground, a stopwatch and a bottle, a litre of water and bang, you're away. You know, it's, it's a very simple thing to measure. And nutrient density can be done relatively cheaply as well. Like I think we, we need to be trying to pay farmers for those sorts of things that, that are much more tangible in the, in the longer term than whether or not carbon goes into a tree and is the tree going to get burnt down? Will the tree be there in 100 years? This is a much more immediate thing. And that sort of permaculture perspective on soils is, is I think, part of the solution to that question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... Yeah, there's a lot of areas I think where we're we're attempting to solve for some of the problems that we've generated using the same thinking that got us to that situation in yeah. the first place. You know, where where we're still reducing and idol and 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 isolating this you know this single issue, um, you know, say carbon. But yeah, like you say, it's you know it's it's the nutrient density of the food, it's the water filtration in the in the soil. And you can kind of essentially then, you can say roughly based on nutrient density, water filtration, and the diversity of plants, you can be like, there's going to be a shitload of carbon in this soil. You know, yeah. like it, it, it is, uh, a, that's going to be a symptom of this thing working well together, you know. Yes, and absolutely. maybe the, the, the direct numbers aren't actually all that important. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think that's true too. I think that, that yes, we need, we need to create a, a satisfaction for farmers and a reward for farmers that's more broadly based on what we're doing at the moment. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I have another couple questions and then I'll let you go. These yep. are, uh, so I've been uh, working with some of your bioferment guides. Yep. Um, trying to make lab serum and then I'll eventually make some hydrolysate or some spice yeah. whatever um and I'd I'm still I'm still getting used to it I'm still trying to figure out how to do it well yeah. um, but so so in all in all of the recipes and you mentioned it early that that you need that source of carbohydrates for the microbes yeah. um <clears throat> with the with the quantity that we're adding that's to ensure lifespan of the product right when when you're making a hydrolysate you add a carbohydrate because it's an energy source when you're making a lab material a lab base material lactobacillus base or when you're extending that to to using compost you're putting molasses into it to feed that thing so that it can sit there <clears throat> With a tight lid for anything up to three to five years. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's about keeping it alive. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was wondering, like, say I'm going to be using the product relatively soon after I've made it, I could potentially reduce the amount of molasses. Oh, absolutely, quite and quite dramatically. And also, too, uh, another question I've been asked quite a few times of people in different remote areas: Can I use sugar as a carbohydrate? You can. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and use a bit less, I would suggest, than molasses. Molasses is good because it's it's liquid and it's mobile and all that sort of thing. So it has lots of, and it's generally used a lot on farms. But there are other there are other things that are carbohydrates that equally could be used. Corn is a very good source of carbohydrate as well. Mm. One of the really interesting things, if you're making a hydrolysate from human manure, from human feces, um, 
in in a lot of average human diets, you could generally find that there'll be enough carbohydrate in that feces to actually run the process itself. So all you've got to do is add an, an inoculant to the mix, make sure it's all stirred up. If it's a pump out from a septic tank, um, put it into a 1,000 litre IBC, put some lactate bacillus in it and whack it, uh, ferment a one-way lock on top, um, and you'll have hydrolysis in no time at all. Wow. Okay. That's shit art. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of where I wanted to then go because I've been trying to figure out, say in the case of, uh, like typically speaking, uh, your recipes use rice. Yep. Could you use potatoes or corn or if, as a as a starter product? Um, yep. Use any grain at all. And I've, any grain. I've used I've used um, now I've used grass. Um, if you're a biodynamic farmer, biodynamic people would say, well, you're better off to use a grain that's actually located in the area where you're living or where you're sure. going to apply it. Makes a lot yep. of sense. Um, but I've made it from. Um, I started off with the base product where you put rice into water, where you put um, barley into water or oats or um, just grass seed from a grass seed crop. I've used um, seed from um, river, riverside eucalypts up in, in the Archer River in Queensland. Um, yeah, so almost any grain should give you that initial effect. Right, okay. So, like, the thing that came to mind for me was acacia seeds. Could you potentially use absolutely, absolutely? Wow. Okay, that's that's shit up. I've I've um I've started working recently removing some of the woody weeds and they're they're all acacias, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's the there's the conservation priority of like those things weren't here a while ago, so they shouldn't be here now. Yeah. But I'm just like, well, sure, I'll cut them down. It's a you know it's a way to be paid and it looks good on paper, whatever. But that dead covered in seeds at yeah. this time of year. And so potentially I could be using those seeds as as the base of my lab serum. Absolutely. And if they're fairly happy and healthy where you are, the plants, you probably find you can make a quite a good product. The right. biodynamic people would love you. Right. Okay. So I could I could use the seeds as the base and I could also then use the leafy material as the protein in the hydrolysate. You certainly could if it's got a reasonable level of protein. Yeah. Right. You've got to you've got to chop it up though, don't forget. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. You've got yeah, to expose as much of the protein as you possibly can to yeah. the lactobacillus. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if you've got a jar that's say yay big, like a, the average honey jar, you need about that much grain in the bottom of it, in with with the water filled up yeah. to about eighty percent or ninety percent, yeah. loose fitting lid to start with, um, and then three days you empty that water into milk. And if to, um, I've had this question quite a few times lately too. Powdered milk will in sometimes, if you're using powdered milk, it'll settle to the bottom instead of the top. Um, right. But most of the time, it, the cheese, when you separate out, when you put it into the milk, after about two or three days, it should give you about that much cheese um, and it should be on the top of the mix. But yeah. the chooks and the dogs and the, everything else loves the cheese as well. And it's quite edible if you're reasonably clean about how you go about making it. It's much like a cottage cheese. Right. Okay. Then that was that was going to be another of my questions. Is that edible? Is that cheese edible? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I haven't yeah. eaten a great deal of it. I mean, it's not the most wondrous cheese, but I mean, sure. you might find you might find if you're making it with acacia seed, you get a particularly wondrous flavour to it as well. Mm. 
bit like kombucha. I've just started recently making kombucha and um, for all sorts of different reasons, but the variations in the flavour are quite phenomenal when you can start fiddling with the base product that you're putting in. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. And then the last question, and I'm pretty sure I I know what the what the issue was, but like one of the mixes I made, one of the lab serums I made, started to get a skin on the top after about a week. Sorry, started to get a what on the top? A, a, a skin, kind of like a... Yeah like yep. a gray sort of a skin and then yep. it looked like in, in in some spots that it had mold on it yeah i'm i'm guessing that my filtration of the milk solids out wasn't good enough no no it doesn't matter that what you've got on top of that is a fungal family member okay and if you if you've got a if you're doing it in a big container with it where you've got a big open throat sometimes if i've taken some photographs of that that are absolutely quite stunning so what you've got is a fungi that's made a home of the top of that brew Right. And and what you'll find it'll do in some instances it will seem to have a central point where it sort of is doing most of its production that will radiate out from that point. Sometimes I've had it look like the the old um, Japanese national setting rising sun logo, you know, with yeah, right. radiating out all over the place. But you'll get some fascinating patterns. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's just a perfectly natural part of the process. And so say if I was gonna uh say so if i was going to use that just stirring that in before i pour it on or like it doesn't yeah doesn't... it doesn't matter just i just use it if i've got a big container which i always have i just dip put the dipper straight through it and just pull it out and put the lid back on yeah it'll recover yeah no it won't do anything any harm it's just it's just part of your biological process oh excellent okay that's good to know um and say if i was doing like, I'm pretty sure you've got the measurements on the thing, but just while I've got you, say I'm doing a, maybe a two cubic metres of compost. Yeah. How much of the spice would I be using for that? If you're using the spice inoculant, it's one litre for every 10 cubic metres of material. So it's so right. Yeah, if you're using two cubic metres, about a cup. Yeah, right. So, but don't keep, keep in mind... You need to get that water level up to about forty percent or more, fifty percent. So you need the disregard the inoculant can go into the water that you use to to wet the pile down, yep. but you only need about a cup in two two cubic meters. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's very it's very little. It's very little. That's yep. yeah. You're dealing with biology and you have to think along the you think have to think along the lines of biology, you know. Okay. Um, it, the, I'm sure in, in terms of COVID, the stuff that's been killing people off is probably no more than something that sits on the end of a pin. You know, so yeah. biology is very, very powerful if you create the circumstances that, or, or virology for that matter, they're all very powerful if you create the right circumstances for them. They'll gladly join the party. Right, okay. Excellent. All right, wonderful. Um, yeah, cool, all right. So. Uh, just to finish up here, do you have any any projects on the go? Anything you're involved with? Any any dates for lectures or tours coming up? Um, I'm I'm work, I'm doing a series of workshops with David Hardwick at the moment from Soil Land Food every Thursday night. We tried to get some people, farmers from the Ukraine, involved in that, but they've been a bit busy at the moment. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping to get them in the future, but I've um. 
I'm working with AKT to set up a company called AKT Oceania so we can concentrate more on doing more of that food processing stuff here in Australia and in local areas. Um, and, yeah, well, yes, I've been still selling a few books and, yeah, but I'm, I'm, it's all keeping me off the street. I, I still don't get a chance to get away from the computer very much, but. Yeah, okay. But, so it's still busy, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Uh, and those those uh, sessions that you're doing with David, are they are they online? If people look up, they look up soil land food. David uses them to make part of his income. So I mean, um, some of us can do things for nothing, but he's got to pay a mortgage. So um, if you look up soil land food or David Hardwick, he's a very reliable, a very considerate agricultural ecologist and one of the best I've come across. I think in terms of agronomy and and soil biology, um, but you can find him on the net. Yeah, excellent, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jerry. That's all right, I really Ryan. Nice it. to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. You uh, always get me thinking more about. Um, yeah. I yeah. think about a few more things we can do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's um, yeah, good. Because every time I, every time I think about or read about any of your work, I'm like, fuck, like this stuff's so. It, it applies so vastly, you know, to, yes, absolutely. to sort out so many of our issues um, and it's all relatively straightforward stuff. Abs absolutely. When when um, when biodynamics was kicked off many, many years ago, um, the whole point of that stuff was it wasn't an end point, it was a beginning point. And it's a bit like permaculture. Permaculture sort of seeps into the joins of almost everything in agriculture if you put it in the right circumstance. And these are these ideas that I have are ideas I keep saying to people all the time. Won't necessarily construct on other people. We're we're all learning from each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we keep swapping information, like your question about fungi and that sort of thing, um, if we keep swapping information with people all the time, it just improves the the better management for all of us. Yeah. And that's that's principally my objective. Yeah. Just yeah. to share the information. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, that's okay, a worthwhile aim. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jerry. You have Pleasure. a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. Be well. Bye. Bye-bye.